Hello, and welcome to Cracking Open a Cold Case and Other True Crimes. Thank you for listening. A true crime podcast by Caitlin and Allison. Sugar is my moniker. Why did I call you Allison? I don't know. I've never done that my whole life. That's probably true, to be honest. Because I think it's weird when people call you Allison. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, it's just weird. And Your family doesn't call you Allison. That's true. But, okay, <laughs> Caitlin, what's in your cold one? Today I am drinking a Diet Coke with lemon from McDonald's. Aww. But they do not have foam cups anymore, and I'm very upset about it. That is super weird. I don't appreciate that shit, McDonald's. No, like, I'm very bugged about it. We know you're listening. I don't even want to go to McDonald's anymore. McDonald's CEO listens to this. (laughs) He does, or she does. Yeah. We don't make any... Assumptions. Yeah, of of their gender. What are you drinking? Ginger ale. Ooh, also from McDonald's? Yeah, from a freestyle machine. Those are good machines. Which one did you go to? I went to the one in Farmington. Ooh, free delivering out there. No. <laughs> I told they were at my job they were they were getting stuff ready for me to take to the hospital so I had to wait anyway and I was like, I'm gonna go get a drink and then I went to the one in South Ogden and that one doesn't have a freestyle machine so it didn't have ginger ale yeah. on tap. So I have naturally had to drive <laughs> twenty minutes away. Yeah. I mean, you do what you have to for the ginger ale. Barbacoa has one of those freestyle machines. Oh, I should have gone there. That's close to your work. I was trying to see if Fizz with that place with two eyes had it. Oh, yeah. But I couldn't see any online. I bet they do. They should. Yeah, they have a lot of interesting things. By the way, we we got a review that said, what the hell is a lime ricky? It's a limeade with grape. So it's just Sprite, lime, and grape. grapes, syrup. And apparently there's some kind on the East Coast with alcohol in it, but we like to drink it all the time, and we aren't about to get drunk off of our delicious drinks. So. I actually had a lime rookie earlier today. Whoa. So, because now that's my favorite drink, I think. It's opened up the gates. It really is so good, because I'm trying to cut back on caffeine. It's interesting because it's like the original mixed drink here, mm-hmm. at least. Yep. Whereas, like, now it's all these soda shops. But a lot of it, it's, like, just in the Ogden area, I feel like. Because I was talking, well, I was talking to Preston, and I was like, did you ever grow up having Lime Rickies? Because we went into Sonic and got one the other night, and he's like, no, I never did. Did you? I was like, well, yeah. Because Warren's always had that deal in the summer for their 99 cents. We'd always go to Jake's and get a Lime Rickie. But up in the Valley, they just never came down for Lime Rickies. In the state of Washington, when I was there, I had to explain to the Sonic person how to make one. I was like, it's just a lime made with grape. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what where it's specific to, because I asked online on Twitter on a poll, and everyone... Let me even look at that, yeah. actually. Let me reference back to that scientific research. Okay, so the poll was on 12-8-17, and I said, do you know what a lime ricky is? And it said... The most, 40% out of 704 votes said from Utah, yes. And then 7% were from Utah and said no. 22% were not from Utah and said yes, they did. And then 31% were not from Utah and didn't know what it was. 
But then, I don't know, it's not like 704 people can represent the whole population. Yeah, but, I mean, I don't think it's... It's one of those weird things like fry sauce, I think. Where, uh, where everyone thinks it's from there? Yeah, but it's... I don't know. Probably not. So if you haven't had one, go to your local Sonic, a limeade with grape. You can thank us later. You can also get diet. Oh, yeah. Juice. I prefer that. Cause I do, too. Not as, like, super overwhelmingly sweet. But that's probably because we're used to diet soda. And yeah. so everything is, like... Too much sugar. Yeah. See, what's an old-fashioned lime ricky? This is really important. Oh, there's a bunch of different shiz. Okay. Old-time lime ricky recipes. From the Dispenser's Formulary or Soda Water Guide of 1915, a Chicago Ricky is a half-ounce raspberry syrup, one-ounce pineapple syrup, one dram lime juice. I don't even know what a dram is. One-ounce grape juice, two drams lemon juice. Place all in a 12-ounce glass, which has been previously been half-filled with shaved ice, then filled nearly to the top with carbonated water, and mix thoroughly. Decorate with a maraschino cherry before serving the Chicago. Crush fresh mint on the ice. Holy frick! That yeah, was so that's much. A lot. Mm -hmm. That was so many instructions. No, you just need the grape, the lime, the sprite. There's all a bunch or of Seven Up or Sierra Mist, whatever. I prefer the sprite. Sierra Mist is actually really good, Bev. It is. I like sprite on occasion, like yeah. when I'm feeling. Like, I need something refreshing. Sprite, Sierra Mist, those are all pretty good options. My grandma used to have grapevines in our yard, and we would make grape juice, and we'd use fresh grape juice in our lime rookies. Oh my gosh, you know what were so good are, like, the tart grapes that would grow in people's yep. backyards? Yep. I swear I never had one from the store. Yep, that's just... what she had. We'd make the grape juice. Oh my gosh! So, in summary... Just get a lime ricky. Make one yourself. I don't care how you get it. Do it. That did turn into a lot, didn't it? Start with a 24 ounce. Make your way up. Um, Actually, maybe start with a 32. Because they are that good. Yeah, and then just do 44s from, now, from then on. Because below 44 is for sissies. The only 32 ounce drink I'll ever get is McDonald's. Why don't they have 44s? They seem like they should be right? ground zero for 44 <laughs> ounces. Okay, well, anyway, what did you do that was interesting this week, Caitlin? Um, I babysat my niece and nephews the, for the weekend. How many? There were three. Did you successfully do it? Yeah, I think so. They I, were 12, 9, and almost 7. Are you ready to be a mother? Nope. Oh, okay. It was a... They were really good, but it's just a lot. We took them to surf and swim. Haven't been there in, since elementary school. Was it great or was it, it gross? Was, no, it was actually pretty good. I was a little worried. I wasn't planning on getting in the water, but I did. It's like when you're an adult and you go to anywhere that you used to frequent as a child and you're like, oh, this is actually disgusting. Yep. But I guess surf and swim doesn't fall under that category. Nope. So what did you do this week? Me and, my, me and Nikki went and saw The Room. Oh, yeah. But in theaters, the one that Ooh. came out in 2003, but they had, like, a... Like that special showing? Yeah, so we could watch it with an audience of like-minded individuals. How was it? It was good, except for 
to anyone that goes to showings of the room, stop yelling spoons whenever there's spoons on the screen. Yeah. Like, it's it was kind of funny at the first time, but then people kept doing it, and I was like, okay. Okay, knock it off. Stop it. It's like a child that thinks of a joke and keeps telling mm-hmm. it over and over. Because they got a reaction one time. Yeah. Come on. Lame. I saw The Greatest Showman. Did you like it? I did. The first couple minutes were real weird. Where there's the kid singing? Well, when he's like whisper singing, sort of. I don't know. Like the very beginning. The song where they're singing at the circus or whatever? I like that song. Yeah, but that first little bit just threw me off. There's a lot of drama because P.T. Barnum was actually a bad person. Yeah. But I don't have very many qualms with that movie because I don't think it's really presented as a accurate thing. No, because Zac Efron's character isn't real. Also, the performers aren't real. It's fine. They were singing on a trapeze for a couple's fight, so I was like, I don't think this is real life. Well, yeah, yeah. So people are mad that it was inaccurate, but it's like, uh, I think it's for kids. Well, some of the stuff happened in his real life. But it was well, just pushed up earlier. There were parts where P.T. Barnum's character was, you were like, oh, okay, you did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, a few of the parts. I was like, okay, what about your wife? Spoiler. Mm, <laughs> saucy. Might get, we might get some comment. Uh, I got food poisoning. From Maple Express. Yeah, well, it might not have been. I don't know. I've been sick for a few days. That's why there's the ginger ale. Yeah, but food poisoning can definitely last a few yeah, days. It lingers. Oh, speaking of lingers, oh, no. the cranberries died. Or I not the cranberries <laughs> died. One of them died. I saw that the lead singer. Yeah, that's sad. Yeah, you got you got that because they have this song called Linger, mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's only forty six. Yeah, that's. Uh, I used to think that was old. It's not that old. I know that's crazy. The cranberries are good, though. They are. What else happened? We've got to give our two cents on everything. We're the tastemakers. We really are. Something that has happened in relation to our other podcast is that Peter Madsen, the guy with the homemade submarine, submarine got charged with Kim Vall's murder. Good. I wonder if he has insanely good lawyers, though, because he's so rich. Yeah, but... But then... I feel like the only thing they could do is take the death penalty off. You know what I mean? Like, because there's so much evidence, and that's probably what they were going to charge him with, is the murder and the death penalty. And so I feel like if you have really good lawyers with that much evidence against you, the only thing they they could do, give you life in prison. Argue for that instead of the death. I wonder if... Does that make sense? Yeah, but I'm wondering if Denmark even has a death penalty. Oh, yeah, I forgot they were in a different country. I don't know. They don't even have a death penalty. Oh, Oh, wait. Well, maybe not. Oh, wait, hold on. This is a roller coaster of emotion. Okay, so I googled Denmark death penalty. It says the death penalty was uh, abolished in Denmark in with the penal code in 1930, but restored again between 1945 to 1950. So I guess they don't know the date. I feel like this isn't even helping. 58 countries that still have the death penalty. Do you have to let it linger? Do you have to? Anyway, Caitlin, what's our cold case? Well, it's not even a cold case. It's red freaking hot. Our true crime case tonight is the Waco, Texas siege. Or the siege at Waco. Whatever (laughs) you want to call it. 
the Waco Siege. That was so saucy. Thank you. The reason that we're doing this podcast is because... What channel is it? Okay, so it's called Paramount. It used to be Spike TV. Oh, yeah. So Paramount Channel, a.k.a. Spike TV in its glory days, is having a six-part mini-sode series about the Waco, Texas siege. So this happened 25 years ago. Also, I'm pretty sure there was like an ABC special earlier this Mm -hmm. month, and then there's going to be an A&E thing on it, so it's a very hot topic. It's everywhere, so we want to get you guys the facts. So you can enjoy the show. So you'll have no facts. watch it together. So you'll have no frequently asked questions. But Sugar and I will probably watch it together. Don't get your hopes up. I texted her like a month ago and asked her. Oh, okay. You said yes. Okay. (laughs) The miniseries starts on January 24th, 2018. Which is next Wednesday. You were right. It is a six-part miniseries. You seem so surprised. I (laughs) forgot. I didn't think you could count. So it happened in 1993. It's a (laughs) 25-year... Anniversary. Anniversary. So it should be pretty good. Yeah. Um, if you're a fan of the TV series Friday Night Lights, which y'all should be, Tim Riggins is the cult leader in this theory- series. And we'll talk more about who that leader is in a little bit. But Taylor Kitsch is in it, so it's worth a watch because he's a babe and a half. If you're also a fan of the biggest <laughs> failure of an epic movie of all time... What was it called? Uh, oh, we looked it up. It was John John Carter. It was a 2012 science fiction film starring Taylor Kitsch. Let's see how much money it lost. I won't hold it against him, sorry. Yeah, he's a babe. It's fine. As long as he's got rock card abs, that's all that and matters. And he's real good as Tim Riggins. What I'm saying is watch it. But I just would like to shout out Geriatric Millennial. Millennial. For their nice review on the Apple Podcast Store. They also said the one with my brother was boring. They didn't say that. It's okay, they though. They just said... I'm not I was offended. not very into it. So thank you for being a fan of me and Sugar together. The other one, the Susan Powell one, I labeled it the brass tax one. Because we weren't going to banter. We were just getting down to the facts, bro. You were. You were. And you did. We told you what we knew. How much money did John... Carter lose estimated loss, one hundred and twenty-two million to two hundred million. I mean, I guess in Hollywood that's a lot. I don't know. It's not a lot to Caitlyn though. No, it's not. It's child's play. <laughs> I have that in my purse right now. Jk, all I have is my Cabela's credit card at the moment. Are yeah. you gonna go buy some camel <laughs> after this? No. Well, anyway, this was back in nineteen ninety-three, but. We're going to start it off with our, our boy David Koresh, who was born Vernon Wayne Howell. So he was born in 1959 in Houston, Texas, to a 14-year-old single mother named Bonnie Sue Clark and father Bobby Wayne Howell. He came from a dysfunctional family background. He was born to those young-ass parents. And before he was born, the dad met another teenage girl and abandoned his mom. David Koresh never <laughs> met his father because he left the mom, and his mom started cohabitating with a violent alcoholic. He had a rough go yeah. from the start. Yeah, he just wasn't ever in a stable home environment. or He didn't have a stable family. In 1963, Koresh's mother left her boyfriend and placed David, who was four at the time, 
in the care of her mother. Earline? Yeah. Earline Clark? Yeah. What a name. Yeah. Earline? Earline? Maybe it's Earline. And his mother came back three years later after her marriage to a carpenter named Roy Haldeman. They had a son together who was born in 1966, so he's seven years younger than our boy David Fresh Vernon. Poor Vernon, poor David, whoever, whatever you want to call him. He was abandoned, and then his mom just decided to come back into his life. That'd be really confusing. And his dad just took off. Yeah, and he doesn't have a dad, and so he is dysfunctional family life. He describes his early childhood as lonely, and it's alleged that he was getting raped by older boys when he was eight. He was put in special ed because he had poor study skills and dyslexia. And he was nicknamed Vernie by his fellow students. I don't know if that's supposed to be like an endearing thing or if they're trying to pretend like that's... Like an insult? Because I don't find that as an insult unless he really was against being called Vernie. He dropped out of Garland High School in his junior year, so he never finished his education. When he was 22, he had an affair with a 15-year-old girl who became pregnant. Why? Why are there so many teen pregnancies in this story? 15? That's so little. Yeah, he's dumb. Her name was Linda. Oh, yep. Her name was Linda, and they lived with her dad. Mm -hmm. David Koresh believed in sex before marriage, but not birth control. And so she got pregnant, and the dad got mad, and... But didn't her dad really like him at first? Probably. He he approved of... I think that might be later when he is convincing people to let them marry his daughter. Yeah. Let him marry their daughter. Yeah. Her name was Linda, the dad of Linda. After she became pregnant and she had the kid, the dad didn't like David Koresh, so he kind of pushed him out. It was his chance at having a normal, functional family with Linda and the kid was taken away by the Mm -hmm. dad, too. Yeah. Whoever Linda's... He doesn't even deserve a name in this story. No. But they don't really blame the dad, because if your 15-year-old daughter is pregnant by a 22-year-old, I don't blame him for pushing David Crush out. But he was letting him live with them. Yeah, so that's like, weird too. Uh, I mean, also weird. I like that where there shouldn't be allowed to have birth control, like it's God's will or something. Right? Some religions don't believe in birth control. Oh. Yeah, so David Crush claimed to have become a born-again Christian in the Southern Baptist Church and, jo- and soon joined his mother's church, which was the Seventh-day Adventist Church. While he was attending his mother's church, he fell in love with the pastor's daughter. He prayed for guidance, and he opened his eyes, allegedly found the Bible opened at Isaiah 34:16, which, a paraphrase of that, says none should want for her mate and David was convinced that that was a sign that God wanted him to have the pastor's daughter as his wife so he went to talk to the pastor about it the pastor threw him out and when he continued to persist with the pursuit of his daughter he was expelled from the congregation if that's a recurring theme is that he uses scripture to kind of manipulate people Mm -hmm. I mean I guess that's a smart move well yeah I mean I'm sure you get some good results he was into music and wanted to be a musician also, just so you're aware. I feel like a lot of cult leaders wanted to be musicians. I feel like they wanted to be famous somehow. Yeah. And just found a different way to become famous. Yeah, because didn't Marilyn Manson? Uh, Not Marilyn Manson. Charles Manson, sorry. No, you're good. Yeah, Charles Manson wanted to be one. Marilyn Manson, I don't know if he's ever had a cult, but he could. <laughs> He's a musician. He's a musician, so he's so he doesn't have a need for a cult, to be yes. honest. Yes. 
1982, he moved to Waco, Texas, where he joined the Branch Davidians, not to be confused with the original Davidian Seventh-day Adventist group. So I guess there was another group called the Bran- the Davidians. The Seventh-day yeah. Adventists. He was just the Davidians, not the Seventh-day ones. Yes. Ben Roden originated the Branch group, and he studied under Victor... Hutef. But upon the death of Hutef in 1955, he formed his own group with new teachings that were not connected to the original Davidians. Okay, so the one that he's in is a spin-off. Yeah, it's a branch of the Davidians. Get not it? the original. Branch Davidians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he played the guitar and sang in church services at the Mount Carmel Center. Which was kind of like the headquarters, in a sense, of the Branch Davidians. That's kind of where the congregation would meet and gather. His band played a few times in clubs. Ooh. And then former members of the Branch of Indian said that the, he had recruited them to, through music. So he was persuasive with his music and with his abilities. Words. Probably and his dance moves, I would imagine. I mean, he didn't have Taylor Kitsch's looks, but... He also hasn't uh, lost a studio. $122 million. It's fine. It's fine. Speaking of studios, David Crest tried to pursue his own record company, but because of lack of funds and support, he was not successful. So he's another failed musician, just like... Just like a lot of people. Yeah. Are you cold, Caitlin? I'm okay. Because I have a Snuggie right here. Ooh. That I'm going to put on. Sugar is now putting a Snuggie on. So, shit's getting real. I'm ready to get real about the Branch Davidians and David Koresh. So, he started claiming he had the gift of prophecy. And that was in 1983, so a year after moving to Waco. Oh, yes. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, and then Lois Roden was... She was the wife of Ben Roden, who founded the Branch Davidians. So, there was a seventh... The Davidian Seventh-day Adventist group. But then the Branch Davidians were formed by Ben Roden who studied under that Victor Hoytiff. Oh, yeah, yeah. I yeah. got confused a little yeah. bit. So, no. yeah, Ben Roden, the guy... But he died, and so his wife, Lois, is the prophetess and leader of the set. She was doing sex stuff with David Koresh. David Koresh. And Lois was 65 years old at the time. And David Koresh was 24. Mm-hmm. So let your mind do what, yeah. what it wants with that. It happens. It's whatever. Lois Roden, the prophetess and leader of the Branch Davidians, claimed that she had claimed that God David Koresh, yep, God go. had chosen David Koresh to father a child with her, and the child would be the chosen one. Apparently, it's supposed to be like, is it Abraham where they they have the where the parents are like eighty eight mm-hmm. and ninety nine or something? Mm-hmm. Yes, or ben, Rebecca. Yeah. I think so. So that's why they associate it with being holy. And they didn't think it was weird that she was 40 years older than him. I mean, they probably in their heart of hearts knew it was pretty weird. But we're like, whatever, they say it's right. We're going to let them slam. Yeah, yeah. Like Space Jam. So, and also in 1983, Lois Roden started to allow David Koresh to begin teaching his own message to the Branch Davidians called the Serpent's Root, which caused controversy in the group because Lois' son, George Roden, was intended to be the group's next leader and considered David Koresh an interloper, an outsider. It seemed like Lois Roden wanted David Koresh to be the next leader, but her son didn't, so it caused some issues and some contention within. So it's like David Koresh is a spiritual gold digger. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. He's probably younger than the son. Oh, yeah. Because if she's 65, the son's probably in his 40s, 50s. 
Probably forties. Yeah. Who depends on how? Yeah, how depends on the forties or fifties or thirties or forties. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's gross. David Koresh announced that God had instructed him to marry a girl named Rachel Jones. So when David and Rachel were getting married, there was a period of calm at the Mount Carmel Center. But it proved to only be temporary because George Roden claimed to have the support of the majority of the Branch civilians, and they forced David Koresh and his group off the property at gunpoint. So David Koresh did have a small group of followers. Some people who believed in the serpent's root, and George was so power hungry and just kicked him off because he didn't want that competition. The serpent's root? Yeah. That sounds so bad, eh? Right. So he, in 1985, Crush and 25 of his followers from Serpent's Root set up camp at Palestine, Texas. It sounds so much cooler than it is, like I know. Palestine, Texas. 90 miles away from Waco, where they lived under rough conditions in buses and tents for two years. Thing. Yeah, and so during that time, Koresh undertook recruitment of new followers in California, the UK, Israel, and Australia. And then that same year, he went to Israel, where he claimed that he had a vision that he was a modern-day Cyrus. And not Billy Cyrus, Billy Ray Cyrus, I mean. He claimed to be Cyrus II of Persia, who was also known as Cyrus the Great, and also called Cyrus the Elder. By the Greeks. Yeah, so he was just a Persian king. Which is quite a vision. Yeah. Here's my thing. How did he have money to go travel? Probably from the branch. But if they were living in buses and stuff, do you think they sold all their belongings to go? I guess they would still probably have their savings accounts. I wonder if they have to put all their assets into the branch. Because yeah. I know that he had quite a bit of control over them. He would make it so that the men and women would have to be separated from each other. So they couldn't phone or get alone to be like, wow, this is getting really weird. I don't know if we should be in this cult anymore. So he had a lot of power. So I wonder if it was just all their money. Yeah, because I mean, flying to California, I mean, California to Texas, whatever, it's not that far. But the UK. Israel and Australia. Well, we all know that being a religious leader is lucrative as fuh. So he was probably fine with the money. But if he had money, why were they living in buses and tents in the desert of Texas? I just have a lot of questions. How did David Koresh have money? I'm asking Google. Okay, hey, look at this. Article from 1993, which is the year this happened. Yeah, so this is March 9th. I think this is while it was going on because it went on yeah. from February to April. Yep. Here's a piece of history. <laughs> On the interweb. It's the Chicago Tribune. It says, Officials puzzled by source of cult's income. A financial riddle lurks behind the events at the besieged Branch Davidian compound. How did an obscure religious sect manage to feed, clothe, house, and heavily arms dozens of devotees with no obvious sources of income? Neither interviews nor public records provide a definitive answer, but some members reportedly tied their income while others give their belongings to the cult. So it's... I mean, that makes sense, but still, that's a lot of money and a lot of resources that he has at his fingers. Yeah. That people are just giving to him without questioning it. I mean, people are dumb. They really are. Listening to a podcast on this where they were talking about all the psychological side of it, I don't even... I can't even get into that. I'm not a psychologist. No, but that's really interesting. It's interesting... Just to think about how you could let yourself well, have someone have that much control over you. I mean, I understand that he was really charismatic, persuasive, things like that. But it's still just crazy to think that there's a bunch of people 
throughout history who have been involved in cults who have like come from but who've come from like all walks of life some are really educated some are really wealthy some are religious and believe in a different thing but they've let one person have that control over them it's just crazy to think about well what is really interesting about the psychology behind it well what i was gonna say is that um the thing i was listening to they said that there's some principle where people can't cut their losses because they gave up so much of their life before they had to go they gave up their assets so they were like we have given up so much we don't want to give up this whereas if they did then they would lose less like so they can't get their losses if that makes sense yeah so it said except for their large costly cache of weapons david koresh and his followers seem to live modestly but some of the members of the cult are like harvard trained some cult members including a hard harvard trained lawyer are employed so yeah just pooling your stuff just all everything together they don't have like a a good system where they like sell eggs or some Shit, I don't even know how cults make money normally. What I'm thinking in my head right now is of Portlandia, where they all go to that one place where they love the same guy. Aliki, that was his name. They all go to that cult where they're doing farming together. Anyway, not that that's really a real example, but yeah, sorry. Okay, so yeah, that's how they got their money. The founder of the Davidian movement, Victor Houghton, Tef, yep. the one that trained Ben Roden. He wanted to be God's implement and establish the Davidic kingdom in Palestine. Koresh wanted, also wanted to be God's tool and set up the Davidic kingdom in Jerusalem. At least until 1990, he believed the place of his martyrdom might be in Israel, but in 1991, he was convinced his martyrdom would be in the United States. Instead of Israel, he said the prophecies of Daniel would be fulfilled in Waco and that the Mount Carmel Center was the Davidic kingdom. Why do you think he was convinced he was a martyr? He was going to be a martyr. He had delusions of grandeur where he thought he was some kind of yeah. religious... Icon. Icon, yeah. Or idol or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I just think it's strange, like, I'm going to be martyred. I mean, I guess... But no, what you're saying definitely makes sense. I guess if you have to die ever, it's chilled... To think that it will mean something. Yeah, that's true. Not that David Koresh is a reasonable person or that his reasoning is sound, but... I mean, I guess we can't really think too or get into his mindset because we will never be in that. You don't know that? We could start a cult. Okay. Do you guys want to be in our cult? Call it the... We don't know what we'll call it, but... We'll get back to you. But you'll give us all your freaking money. So I don't have to work anymore because I'm over that. So in 1986, the exiled Branch Davidians, which was David Koresh and those 25 followers, they found out that Lois Roden had died, and they wondered if they would ever be able to return back to the Mount Carmel Center just because... They didn't know how, who was going to be in charge, if George Roden was going to cause an issue. Despite the displacement of them being exiled, David Koresh enjoyed the loyalty of the majority of the Branch Davidian community. So even though David Koresh wasn't physically at the Mount Carmel Center, he wasn't living with the majority of the Branch Davidians, they were loyal to him. By late 1987, George Roden's support was in steep decline, and to regain the power, yeah, he challenged Koresh to a contest to raise the dead. Um, he even went as far as to exhume a corpse to demonstrate his spiritual supremacy over David Koresh. But David Koresh went to the authorities to file charges against George Roden for illegally exhuming a corpse. But he was told that he would have to show proof, like a picture 
or something like that. So he seized that opportunity to seek criminal prosecution of George Rodin by returning to the Mount Carmel Center with seven armed followers because he wanted to get that picture of the corpse so that he could take it to the authorities and really make sure that George Rodin was punished for it. But David Crush was found and discovered by Rodin in a gunfight broke out. So just like normal stuff is going on. Someone exhumed a corpse and came, someone told the police and came back to get evidence and then they started a gunfight. What ifs? The gunfight starts up when the sheriff arrived, Rodin had already suffered a minor gunshot wound and was pinned down behind a tree. As a result of the incident, Koresh and his followers were charged with attempted murder. Ooh. At the trial, David Koresh explained that he went to the Mark Ca- Mount Carmel Center to uncover evidence of a criminal disturbance by Rodin. And then his followers were acquitted and Koresh's case was declared a mistrial. So he got off pretty easy yeah. considering how nuts the right? whole situation is. David Koresh, you dog. He's just living his best life. 1989, Ben Roden murdered Wayman Dale Adair with an axe blow to the skull after Adair stated his belief that he was the true messiah. And Adair is saying he himself was, not that George was. So then Roden was convicted of murder and imprisoned in a psychiatric hospital at Big Springs, Texas. And since he owed thousands of dollars in unpaid taxes on the Mount Carmel Center, Koresh and his followers were able to raise the money to pay the taxes and reclaim the property. Things are just not going well for George Roden. His life is kind of becoming a shit show. Also, his last name sounds like Roden. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, I don't like that. Huge scientific discovery by me. His last name sounds like Roden. <laughs> Whoa, I'm shook. It's crazy. And then from his psychiatric unit, Ben Roden oh, yeah. continued to harass. Koresh and his followers by filing legal papers while he was in prison. And when Koresh and his followers reclaimed Mount Carmel Center, they discovered that tenants who had rented from Rodin had left behind a meth lab, which Koresh reported to the local police department and asked to have removed. Well, what I was pausing on was that he filed legal papers while in prison, and it doesn't say what they were for. Yeah, it just... I wonder if they were saying that David Koresh, his followers, were the tenants who had rented from him because they were his followers and they had left behind the meth lab. But I don't know. That would, That's how I was kind of reading it, is that he was trying to get them in trouble. So maybe he was saying that they're the ones that have the meth lab. How much weight does one pull from a psychiatric ward? I'm going to file this paper, this motion. the cops are going to take it real serious. Yeah, that's weird. Now David Crush seems to be the new leader. George Roden's out of it. Lois Roden's dead. Okay, if we're honest with ourselves, George Roden was never the leader. No. Just in his mind. He probably didn't even have abs like David Crush. (laughs) Like Taylor he, Kitsch, well, who Taylor, plays David Crash, had. He looks real scrawny in the vid, in the series. But I only saw that trailer. I just have seen it a few times on YouTube where they're like, "We want to humanize the people in the cult or something," and I'm like, "Okay, whatever, it's fine. Do do you, <laughs> you do you." Yeah. So well, he changed his name from Vernon Howell. So this whole time he had been Vernon, but we've been calling him David Crash because that's what he's known as. But he didn't change his name until 1990, specifically May 15th, 1990, 
He changed it for publicity and business purposes to David Koresh. And then August 28th, it was granted that he should get the name David Koresh. Koresh is the biblical name of Cyrus the Great, the guy who he claimed to be. Yeah, he had that vision. He was the modern day version of him. Ooh, this is, I was just saying, I know that Cyrus the Great had more to the story than what we said earlier. And it just says, he's a Persian king. He was named a messiah for freeing Jews during the Babylonian captivity. David, the first name, symbolized a lineage directly to the biblical king David, from whom the new messiah would descend. By taking the name of David Koresh, he was professing himself to be the spiritual descendant of King David, a messianic figure carrying out a divinely commissioned errand. He basically just he thinks he's a messiah. Would you agree? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. He's a he's an interesting fellow. Yeah, he's pretty far gone in terms of the grasp of reality. Oh yeah, he has no grasp. He's gone. A sidebar: There were a lot of accusations of child abuse and rape throughout the Branch Davidians. These claims were circulated through the press coverage, so it's kind of hard to separate the purported claims from the evidence because once the press got a hold of this they ran with it but David Koresh's doctrine of the house of David did lead to marriages in quotations with both married and single women in the group and with at least one underage girl so he was like spiritually married to a bunch of girls he would always be like the bible told me mm -hmm. and he girl. Would, yeah and he would use like the scriptures in the bible to kind of justify what he was doing but the underage girl that he was spiritually married to was a girl named Michelle Jones, who was the younger sister of David Koresh's legal wife, Rachel, who he'd married back in, like, 1983, I think. And she was the daughter of lifelong Branch Davidians, Perry and Mary Bell Jones. David Koresh had sex with her when she was 13, and apparently her parents gave David permission to have sex with their 13-year-old daughter. So that means that David Koresh was in violation of state law and could have been prosecuted for statutory rape in Texas, but her parents were lifelong members. They're not going to, if child Question protective, him. yeah, and if child protective services or the authorities come knocking, they're not going to turn them in. That's just not how, that's not what they're going to do. Well, it's like polygamy where Warren Jeffs was like, I can sleep with all these 14-year-olds because I'm called of God to do it. But yeah, there's a ton of different investigations against him. We probably won't get into that because that would take a long time. Wait, but here's a little uh, note. In his book, so I guess James Tabor, Tabor, T-A-B-O-R, yeah. states that David Koresh acknowledged on a videotape sent out of the compound during the standoff that he had fathered more than 12 children by several wives. On March 3, 1993, during negotiations to secure the release of the remaining children, Koresh advised the negotiation team that my children are different than those others, referring to his direct lineage versus those other children previously released. So, yikes. He's a piece of work. Maybe he had children from underage girls. I'm sure he did. There was no... Well, he didn't believe in birth control. And so if you're having sex with multiple ladies multiple times, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to knock one up. As, as I mentioned, James Tabor wrote a book about it, and it's called Why Waco, and it came out in 1995, in case anyone wanted to check that out. I might read that. I need a good book to read. 
Just a cool plug for my friend James that I don't know. Me and Caitlin are going to write a book about being internet famous. <laughs> of having a hundred people listen to our podcasts. So this siege we've been talking about, we'll get into more details about that in a second, but I just wanted to bring up that it happened as a result of the U.S. Treasury Department's Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. They launched the raid on them because of they were under suspicion of having illegal possession of firearms and explosives. Because when David Koresh took over, he got everyone in the Doomsday Parade. He convinced the Davidians that they are living in the end of times and puts them in survival mode. And then, so they start immediately stockpiling food and weapons. What else do you need to live besides food and weapons, Caitlin? There are knots there. That's a good point. I only need 40 guns to live. And some weapons. And some food. And Diet Coke. True. And a lime ricky. Yep, multiple. Sunday, February 28th, 1993. At about 9.30 a.m., the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, from here on out referred to as the ATF, tried to raid the Branch Davidian compound. Gunfire erupts, four ATF agents are killed, and 16 are wounded. Many Davidians are also killed or wounded. Within a few hours, the FBI becomes the lead agency for resolving the standoff. The next day, Monday, March 1st, 10 children are sent out of the compound. Yep. Then two days later, Koresh says that he will not surrender because he's dealing now with his father and not with your bureaucratic system of government. He delivers various rambling sermons focusing on such biblical matters as unlocking the seven seals and interpreting God's intentions about the end of the world, which is so comforting right. when you're in a siege. And then two days after that, a nine-year-old girl named Heather Jones leaves the compound wearing a note pinned to her jacket. On her note, the mother states that once the children are out, the adults will die. Koresh and his right-hand man, Steve Schneider, deny that they will commit suicide. So on Tuesday, March 9th at 2.15 a.m., the electricity to the compound is shut off. David Koresh says he will not allow talk to continue until power is restored. A short while later, power is restored. HRT members see weapons in the windows and firing ports being cut in plywood placed in the windows. So HRT is the hostage rescue team, referred from here on out as HRT. Yep. HRT motherfucker. So Wednesday, March 10th, electricity is temporarily cut off again. And Friday, March 12th, Janet Reno is sworn in as the Attorney General of the United States. Jamar, which I think is, he's one of the HRT. He's one of the, yeah, the lead figures for the ATF and FBI. So I'm just going to say an agent. We're not going to say the names. Okay. Well, well, wait, but there's probably more than one. Yeah, so Jamar, who is an agent decides to cut off power to the compound for good because he wanted those inside the compound to experience the same wet and cold night as the tactical personnel outside. That sounds like the same principles as the pioneer trek in church where you have to go and be like the pioneers for three days. Yep. Come on. Jeez. So the justification for cutting the power is that it is going to be a very cold night and maximum effect would be gained in making the Davidians uncomfortable inside the compound. Also, cutting the power is designed to challenge David Koresh's control of the situation and raise the level of stress within the compound to force more departures. So they wanted David Koresh to lose the, his control over his followers, essentially. So the next day on Saturday, March 13th, Schneider, David Koresh's boy, complains that people inside the compound are cold and freezing. 
And then at nightfall the next day, Sunday, March 14th, the FBI begins to illuminate the compound with bright lights to disrupt their sleep and put additional pressure on those inside and to increase the safety of the hostage rescue team. Thursday, March 18th, so four days later, the FBI broadcasts a message to those in the compound over a loudspeaker. The message says that any members of the compound that come out will be treated fairly and then nine members exit the compound. So two days later on Saturday the 20th, another Davidian, Rita Riddle, comes out of the compound. Then Sunday, March 21st, two more women. That's such a sweet name, Rita Riddle. Right? Victorine Hollingsworth and Anita Richards leave the compound. The FBI begins to play Tibetan chants over the loudspeaker system. David Koresh says because of loud music, nobody's coming out. A short while later, the loudspeaker system malfunctions. That would be very weird to see. Mm -hmm. Two days later, Tuesday, March 23rd, at 10.05 a.m., Livingstone Fagan leaves the compound, the last one out during the standoff. At 10 p.m., the FBI shines floodlights on the compound and plays over the loudspeaker tapes of previous negotiations and messages from those who had exited the compound. Jeez, they're not playing they, games. No, they're not. On Thursday, March 25th, Hey, that's person's birthday. I love the name Livingstone Fagan. Also, yeah, sorry, my, your husband's birthday. An FBI ultimatum is set: ten to twenty people must leave by four p.m., or some action will be taken. At four p.m., armored vehicles move into the compound and remove motorcycles and go karts. Because apparently they they had a lot of go karts at the Mount Carmel Center. All members had to have a gun and a go kart, obviously, and some food. That's all. The next day, Friday, March 26, lights, music, and helicopter activity occur throughout the night. The FBI issues another ultimatum, and armored vehicles begin clearing the area around the compound. A few days later, April 4th, on a Sunday, lawyers meet with David Koresh and decide that everyone will come out after Passover. Then the next day is Passover, and they observe it. Two days later... After Passover, David Koresh refuses to confirm an exit date. Hostage Rescue Team Commander Richard Rogers proposes a tear gas plan. And on Friday, April 9th, David Koresh sends a letter to the FBI saying the heavens are calling you to judgment. And the FBI finalizes plans to use tear gas and seek Janet Reno's approval. And Janet Reno is the Attorney General. I like that he would subtweet them and say the heavens are calling right. you to judgment. And they're like, cool, I have some tear gas for you. I'm going to gas your ass for that. So about a week later, on Friday, April 16th, David Koresh tells negotiators that he has completed the manuscript of the first seal, and Janet Reno rejects a tear gas plan. David Koresh was writing a book about the seven seals of the Bible, and so he had finished the book on the first seal. Saturday, April 17th, Janet Reno approves an amended FBI tear gas plan, but gives the plan only a cursory review, leaving tactical decisions to those at Waco. So basically, she just skimmed through it. Sunday, April 18th, armored vehicles clear David Koresh's Camaro away from the front of the compound. Although the FBI warns the Davidians to stay out of the tower, they hold children up in windows and in one window hold a sign saying, Flames Await. I just want to point out that Camaros are bitchin'. Seriously. April 19th. Sage informs the Davidians that a tear gas assault is imminent. He reads an, a message over the loudspeaker advising the Davidians that they are under arrest and should come out. 
At 6.02 a.m., two FBI combat vehicles begin inserting gas into the compound through the spray nozzles attached to a boom. At 6.04, the Davidians start shooting, and the FBI begin deploying Bradley vehicles to insert ferret rounds through the windows. Are Bradley vehicles like armored cars? Yep. Mm-hmm. 6.31, the HRT reports that the entire building is being gassed. At 7.30, what is a CEV? That was another, like, armored vehicle. Oh, okay. It's like compact. It's a European Volleyball Confederation. I mean, that too. Oh, that's not even the right... Why is that in the... On the Wikipedia page for CEV, it says European Volleyball Confederation for CEV. Okay, oh, combat engineering vehicles. 7.30, a CEV breaches the front side of the building on the first floor as it injects gas. At 7.58 a.m., gas is inserted in the second floor in the back right corner of the building. The FBI calls for more gas outside Waco, and at 9.20 a.m., 48 more ferret rounds. The ferrets are the gas, right? Mm -hmm. Yep arrived from Houston. About 9.30 a.m., the supply of ferrets is dwindling by 9.30 a.m. One armored vehicle is having mechanical troubles. High winds are blowing the gas away, the tear gas that they're trying to gas them with. Another armored car begins enlarging the opening with the middle front of the building from which the Davidians could escape. So they're trying to create an escape hole. Yeah. So they want the members to be able to leave the compound, the Mount Carmel Center, Safely. A third CEV with a boom but lacking a gas delivery system breaches the rear side of the building to create openings near the gymnasium. The CEV without a gas delivery system breaches the back side of the compound. At 11.40 a.m., the last ferret rounds are delivered. At 11.45, a wall on the right rear side of the building collapses. At 12.07, the Davidians start simultaneous fires at three or more different locations within the compound. An HRT observer reports seeing a man starting a fire in the front of the building. At 12.12 p.m., Sage calls on Koresh to lead the Davidians out to safety. Nine Davidians flee the compound and are arrested. At 12.25 p.m., the FBI hears systematic gunfire coming from the compound, leaving several agents to believe that the Davidians are either killing themselves or each other. At 12.41, firefighting efforts begin. The compound burns to the ground in a tremendous fireball, killing 80 followers, 18 of which are children and David Koresh. So that's the final day. It was 51 yep. days. It went down in flames, literally. Autopsy reports indicate that at least 20 Branch Davidians were shot, including five children under the age of 14. That's awful. Three-year-old Dalen Gent was stabbed in the chest. Oh my gosh. Jeez. He was three? Yeah. The medical examiner who performed the autopsies believed that these gun deaths were mercy killings by the Davidians trapped in the fire with no escape. Still. The expert retained by the U.S. Office of Special Counsel concludes that many of the gunshot wounds were self-destruction either by overt suicide, consensual ex execution, or less likely forced execution. That's awful. Well, it's awful like so many people had to die. Definitely. Autopsies of the dead revealed that some of the women and children found beneath a fallen concrete wall of a storage room died of skull injuries. Autopsy photographs of other children locked in what appeared to be a spasmic death pose are consistent with cyanide poisoning, one of the results produced by burning CS gas. I don't even know what CS gas is. The, the tear gas? Yeah, I think so. The U.S. Department of Justice report indicated that only one body had traces of benzene, one of the components of the solvent dispersed CS gas, 
the gas insertions had finished nearly one hour before the fire started that it was enough time for the solvents to dissipate from the bodies of the branch davidians that had inhaled the tear gas so that's weird yeah so it's very depressing it is <laughs> and a lot of people some like controversy for it are they're saying that the government had too much power and they like exercised that power and they didn't have the right to do it that's that's fair i guess but i mean there's i'm sure there's different ways that this could have been prevented. The new director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, John McGaw, criticized several aspects of the ATF raid. McGaw made the Treasury Blue Book report on Waco required reading for new agents. A 1995 GAO report on use of force by federal law enforcement agency observed that on the basis of the Treasury's report on the Waco operation and views of tactical operations experts and ATF's own personnel, ATF decided in October 1995 that dynamic entry would only be planned after all other options have been considered and began to adjust its training accordingly. Nothing remains of the buildings today other than the cement foundation components as the entire site was bulldozed two weeks after the end of the siege. Oh, okay. Only a small chapel built years later stands on the site. Okay. There was a trial after. On August 3rd, 1993, a federal grand jury returned a superseding 10-count indictment against 12 of the surviving branch Davidians. That's what the A&E thing is about. Well, according to what I've gathered yeah. from the commercials is that it's people who survived it and oh, okay. were, like, felt guilty. And so it was like, it's their stories, personal yeah. stories. The grand jury charged, among other things, that the Branch Davidians had conspired to and aided and abetted in murder of federal officers and had unlawfully possessed and used various firearms. The government dismissed the charges against one of the 12 Branch Davidians. What? The government dismissed the charges against one of the 12 Branch Davidians pursuant to a plea bargain. There were nine of the Branch Davidians who were convicted and got sentences of up to 40 years. But basically they were being tried for the murder of federal officers and for stockpiling. Conspiring to do that. And stockpiling weapons. Yeah, there's a lot of other, there's there's many ins and outs to this. There's lots of civil suits. Uh, But yeah, anyway, in about 2008, was it David Koresh's mom was murdered by her sister? Yes. Yeah, but I don't remember why. It was over something... Well, we don't know why. There's stuff on it. Bonnie Sue Clark was murdered by her sister. This is from 2009. The mother of infamous Branch Davidian sect leader David Crash has been stabbed to death and Crash's aunt was in custody on a murder charge Saturday. Bonnie Clark Haldeman was found Friday afternoon in the home of her sister Beverly in a rural area near Chandler, Henderson County. Henderson County Sheriff Ray Nutt, with two T's, said <laughs> Chandler is about... Oh, wait, I'm, that's quoting him. I'm having a problem reading today. Uh, yeah, so not. we don't know what happened, and I, but she apparently killed her with a knife. Her sister is 10 years younger than her. So there's a lot of different other things that happen after this, but I just think that's an interesting note. Yeah, it's just, the whole thing's, cults are so interesting. How the government got involved and how they had weapons, the whole thing is just a very strange event. True. And I'm excited to watch the six-part mini series i wish it was all at one time yeah we want to binge yeah i want to wait a week yeah so maybe i should wait until the end and just binge watch all six you probably should okay 
Don't give us any spoilers, because I think that's what I'm going to do. Also, sorry if you watch it before this, and then you listen to this, and you're like, oh, they missed all this info. <laughs> Don't judge listen, us. Listen, we're amateurs. We are amateurs. And we are not afraid to admit it. Leave us a good review on Apple Podcasts, whether you meet it or not. And follow us at Cracking Open Pod on Twitter. And just... Stay like, beautiful. Yeah, just... Keep being you, keep listening, and keep cracking open those cold ones. True. (laughs) Okay, bye. Thanks.